We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. Psalm 9. To the chief musician, to the tune of Death of the Son, a psalm of David. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. I'm glad the uh, youngsters are still here. I want to give attention and honor to God's word. Verse 6, O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities, even their memory has perished, but the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is ensnared in the work of his own hands. Meditation. Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. The understanding is that they will go to the same destination. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. Psalm 10. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches. He lies low that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief, to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. 
Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Ezra chapter 2 this morning. I uh, took an exam this afternoon for one of my classes, and uh, like any exam, often it requires a lot of memorization, a lot of lists, and remembering things from lists, and that's not always easy for me. Maybe it's just me. I know for some others it comes much easier. This never seemed to be the case for me, but uh, so in some way I've come to disdain lists, you know, because of all the information that's required uh, to learn, but nonetheless, important information. And maybe in your reading of scripture, you've come to lists, and uh, whether it be genealogies or some other kind of lists, and there's the temptation to maybe even skip over that and say, well, for one, it's hard to say those names. Poor Brother Drew had to read through Nehemiah, which was a long, many lists of names. And we see that elsewhere in Scripture. And so the temptation may be to say, well, there's nothing for me here. It doesn't apply in any way, and so we move on. Why is that? Well, again, because maybe it seems difficult. It seems like the names really have, really have no meaning. You know, it's a list of names of people who have passed centuries or millennia ago. And so what does it have for us? And so that may be your feeling before. But I caution us from having that kind of sense toward uh, or feelings toward lists in genealogies because there is much that we can learn from it as we look at it. And so as we look at Ezra chapter 2 this evening, we'll quickly recognize that really this is a list of names. It's not a genealogy like we find in Matthew and Luke or in the book of Genesis, for instance. Uh, There are names here, but it's not the same. It's kind of a different kind of category than a genealogy. Genealogies typically are, you know, kind of uh, chronologically looking at names of fathers and their descendants uh, as a way of kind of demonstrating, perhaps in the case of in Matthew and Luke, the genealogy of Christ and how he is connected back to David in the Davidic line. That's not exactly what we have here this evening. This isn't a genealogy to prove uh, necessarily the descendancy of one particular person, but rather um, the descendancies of many people as they relate to the nation of Judah as a whole, God's covenant community. And I think one of the truths that we can pull from this passage this evening is that God's plan of redemption, thinking back to the Abrahamic covenant and then the Davidic covenant, God's plan of redemption required the obedient act of people who would reestablish themselves in the land. Remember back in Ezra 1, God moved certain people, moved in their hearts, worked in their hearts, caused them to take action, that is to respond to that proclamation and return to the land. And what, what, what was the significance of that? It was that it was required for them to re- return in order for that Davidic covenant to be fulfilled, for God's plan of redemption to be fulfilled. One passage that comes to mind says that, you know, the Messiah would come from where? Bethlehem, right? Well, how could he come from Bethlehem if there was no one established in the land? What if they had stayed in Babylon, not been obedient to God's drawing kind of work, the work he was doing in their hearts? And so God's plan of redemption required the obedient act of these people who we see listed out in Ezra 2 in order for his promises to be fulfilled and for the Messiah to come from Bethlehem as well as the other promises that 
we see for the nation of Israel, which are still to be fulfilled, some in the future. In chapter 1, if you have been following along in our series here, Ezra emphasizes God's providential work. We said that was the purpose of Ezra 1. That was the purpose for, uh, or the reason for which Ezra wrote it in a certain way, to kind of foreground the fact that God was providentially working by causing Cyrus to make a proclamation that would permit the Israelites to return to Judah and specifically Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And as with Cyrus, God moved, that is, he excited or roused or stirred certain people, a remnant of Israelites, to respond to this proclamation in in a positive manner, to say, I'll go back, I'll return to my city of origin, I'll go back and help with this project of rebuilding. Of course, Amongst those who returned were probably first, second, and even maybe third generation deportees. You know, thinking back to the first deportation, 605 B.C., now it's 538. And so it's very likely that some of these original uh, Israelites were returning. Of course, in Babylon, many probably were born there, and so we might have second and third generation children who didn't necessarily experience that deportation, but their parents may have, their grandparents may have. And some of them are returning now to the land. The oldest were those who had been carried away to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar in one of the three deportations. For some, it had been 50 to 70 years since they had been taken captive. They had been living in Babylon for that long now. As we noted last week, It's likely that age, sickness, and disability may have hindered some from being able to make that 900-mile arduous journey back to Jerusalem. But even if they couldn't return, as we noted last week, they probably gave gifts to help with the travel expenses and to help with the project of rebuilding the temple. Much like we noted last time, the situation when the Israelites left Egypt. Remember, the Egyptians lavished upon them goods and silver and gold. And this is somewhat reflective of that, echoing that same kind of experience long ago. In chapter 2, though, Ezra records the list of names of those who were recipients of God's stirring work in their heart, as we saw in chapter 1 and who responded by leaving the province of Babylon and returning to their own city in Judah with Zerubbabel and Sheshbazar. We see this in Ezra 2.1. He says here, he records, now these are the people of the province, I take that to mean the province of Babylon, who came back, that is back to Judah, from captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon. And who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Now, the list here is not exhaustive in the sense that it does not list every returnee's individual name. That would take too long to do and uh, fill many, many pages. However, the names here are collectively re- represent families, uh, as well as locations or the place of origin from which they came, as well as their occupation. And this evening, we're not even going to read the whole chapter. Uh, We could do that. It wouldn't be a bad endeavor. But uh, one, for sake of time and also for, you know, the many names, we'll just highlight a few things, a few verses throughout this chapter, specifically uh, some of the important leaders that, are kind of fronted at the beginning of this list. We see in uh, verse 2, it says this, Ezra records, those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reeliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, and Bigvi, Raham, and Bahana, the number of the men of the people of Israel, and then he goes on to list those, and we'll 
kind of talk about that in just a moment. But I want to focus our attention just for a moment at the names of some of these important leaders that Ezra records in verses two. Uh, in verse two, the list begins with a few important leaders, two of which I want to highlight because we see them uh, mentioned later on in Ezra, as well as in other uh, prophetic books as well. And the first is Zerubbabel. Perhaps you remember last uh, week we talked about how some see the man Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel as the same person. Uh, I don't take that view. I believe they are two separate individuals. And we made a small argument that last, last time that Sheshbazar was the political appointee, the one appointed by Cyrus as kind of you know, the Babylonian uh, political figure that would uh, rule in Judah. However, Zerubbabel would have been the leader that was recognized by the Israelites. For which reasons, we'll look at here just now. Uh, Haggai chapter 1, verse 14, uh, says that he was the governor of Judah following the Babylonian exile. We note uh, as well that Zerubbabel provided very solid administrative leadership to the project of rebuilding the temple. He's also identified as a descendant of David, which I think is noteworthy. However, uh, he's never established officially as king in Judah, simply governor. He's also the grandson of King uh, Jehoiachin and is listed in Matthew and Luke's genealogies of Jesus, interestingly. But not only is Zerubbabel's royal descent notable, I would also postulate that uh, his determination and will to obey the word of the Lord by rebuilding the temple is also notable. We see, uh, we'll turn there just for a moment, uh, Haggai chapter 1. It says uh, in verse 12 of chapter 1, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Obeyed his voice. In the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And then, and, excuse me, And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Verse 13, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Noteworthy then that Zerubbabel was a man who feared the Lord and saw that the temple would be rebuilt. And that strong uh, administrative leadership and allegiance to God was exactly what the people of Israel needed at that time as they're returning to the land and seeking to reestablish the land, to reestablish. Uh, the worship of God, of Yahweh in the temple, Zerubbabel provided that much-needed leadership. Perhaps as a means of application, although this isn't necessarily the point of Ezra 2, there is that same need today for strong leadership to point people to Christ, to point them to properly worshiping the Lord, and getting the job done. Another notable character that we see in verse 2, as well as uh, the man identified as Jeshua or Joshua. He's the second one listed here in Ezra chapter 2. This man was a Levite who served as a high priest, and he is the great, great, great grandson of Hilkiah, the high priest. Maybe that name rings a bell. 
who is Hilkiah. Remember during the reign of Josiah, there was a man who was going uh, through the temple and he found a book. He found a book and that book happened to be God's law, the book of the law. And so in part then, he aided King Josiah with these religious reforms in Josiah's day. Now, a few generations later, his grandson, Jeshua, is helping to also bring religious reform after a long period of exile, apart from you know, the, the religious you know, actions and services that would take place in the temple. Like Hilkiah then, Jeshua was influential in bringing religious reform in the post-exilic community at a very critical juncture in the nation's history. He, too, was responsible for helping in the rebuilding of the temple, specifically rebuilding the altar to the Lord. We see this in Ezra chapter 3, verse 2. It says, Then Jeshua, the son of uh, Josadak, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Think about it just for a moment, for 50 to 70 years or so, really, yeah, uh, at least that, they were not able to fulfill God's law in offering sacrifices in the temple. For one, they were not in Jerusalem. Secondly, there was no altar. And so this was a significant time in which they were rebuilding the altar and able to once again fulfill the law of Moses. What an important uh, part that Jeshua had in helping this to happen. So together with Zerubbabel, these two men exercise leadership in this covenant community, and we'll see that throughout the rest of Ezra as well. Now, uh, Ezra goes on to list a number of other leaders, Nehemiah and others, but this Nehemiah should not be confused with the infamous cupbearer who returned in 444 B.C. That would make him much uh, too old at that time to be the same figure. But, you know, we shouldn't be surprised by that. People often share the same name. Uh, You know, you probably know at least one person who shares your name. And that was not uncommon in that day as well, especially in the Israelite community. Um, and such is true of the man named Mordecai here. Perhaps, you know, your, your mind quickly goes to the book of Esther and you say, aha, Mordecai. Uh, but the same is true with Mordecai here. He shouldn't be confused with the one mentioned in Esther. This is a different figure, a different person, but, you know, perhaps uh, of the same descendancy. I haven't done the study on that, but That may have been the case that, you know, just like you may name your child after your great-great-grandfather or whatever, or grandmother, they often shared names, and that was a a wonderful thing. Of course, the others that are mentioned here in Ezra chapter uh, 2, verse 2, are important, but uh, we don't know much more detail on them. But in their day, they had a significant role. We don't want to forget that in helping reestablish the covenant community in Judah. And at that time, they did have a major influence. Now, the rest of the list is broken up uh, in a number of different kind of categories or uh, sections. And in verses 2 to 20, again, without reading it, we see that uh, the names are listed by their genealogy or by by their family name. We see uh, in verse 2, it says at the end, the number of the men of the people of Israel. You may look at that and say, you know, what's so significant of that kind of introduction? Well, the the term Israel is used to describe, of course, those listed here. And the term identifies those in view as those who are God's covenant community and recipients of his covenant blessings. We're not talking about anyone here. We're talking about the people of Israel regardless of the fact that they weren't in the land of Israel, God's promised land. They're still a nation. They're still a people of God. They're still the covenant 
community. They're the recipients of God's blessings as well as uh, the ones responsible to fulfill the law of Moses and keep their end of the deal as it, as it were. They, of course, were the recipients of his faithfulness as he fulfilled his promise to bring them back to Judah. Of course, the term Israel often uh, or can also refer to the northern nation of, of the, you know, the whole you know, community of Israel. But these were, uh, in this case, uh, those who were descendants of the southern kingdom, those who were of Judah, the southern kingdom. And these people in verses 2 to 20 are represented by the heads of the family. So like we said, this isn't a list of every individual name, but a list of the heads of the families by their genealogy. And there's 18 families mentioned in these 19 verses here. And now in verses 21 to 35, we see names by geographical location. Just look with me at verse uh, 21. It says, the people of Bethlehem. So we've moved on from identifying them by their genealogy or family to identification by their place of origin. That wouldn't at this time be too hard to do to kind of, uh, kind of map, map your genealogy out to say, you know, my, my ancestors lived in this city. I'm from Bethlehem or I'm from Nazareth, or I'm, you know, uh, from some other location. Only 50 to 70 years had passed, and so it wouldn't be difficult to do that. In this day and age, though, if you were to probably go to Israel and ask, you know, where's your place of origin, or even, you know, what tribe do you come from, it would be very difficult for them to be able to figure that out. So many years have passed, and the records haven't been kept as neat, if I can put it that way, uh, or they've been lost, and so it would be much more difficult today for them to be able to tell you with, with surety or with certainty, you know, even what tribe they're from, much less, you know, where their ancestors and descendants lived. But at this time, it wasn't too difficult to do that or to, to determine that, and so we see here in verses 21 to 35, names listed by their geographical location or their, or their place of origin, we might say. There's uh, 21 geographical names uh, emerge in this section of the list. Um, and uh, the first, I find it notable that the first here listed is Bethlehem as an important city in Judah. Uh, moving on to verses 36 to 39, we see the list then kind of sectioned off or identified by names of priests. Look with me just at verse uh, 36. It says, The priests, and then the sons of Jedidiah of the house of Jeshua, 973. Something we haven't mentioned yet is often these, at the end of each section, there's a sum total of you know, how many people were uh, returning. And we'll talk about that briefly later on. The list uh, here in verses 36 to 39 identifies these names by their occupation, we might say, versus their geographical location or their family name. It's rather they're kind of identified by their occupation and, first of all, by uh, those who were serving as priests. Priests uh, were of the tribe of Levi. Sure, we don't, uh, that's not new news to us. They were responsible for uh, services pertaining to the temple. Remember, God first established the appointed duties of the priests through Aaron all the way back in Exodus 28. He served as kind of the first high priest, the, the mediator, as it was, were between God and the people of Israel. The priesthood was reserved for the descendants of Aaron. And so in that way, then, they had to be able to connect their... their uh, their genealogy or their descendancy to uh, the tribe of Levi and then, you know, ultimately back to, to Aaron. Only Levites could minister, uh, or excuse me, only priests could minister uh, at the sacrifices of the altar. Number 1640 tells us that. 
All priests were Levites by, uh, by their descendancy. But note this, not all Levites were priests. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites served as priests. And that's why then in verses 40 to 54, we see a distinction made between the priests and then Levites. Look at verse 40. Uh, it says, Now the Levites, the sons of Jeshua, and Cadmiel of the sons of Hodaviah, 74. And so uh, Ezra goes from listing out the names uh, of priests to now the names of Levites. Levites, well, who were not priests, also had appointed duties in the service in the tabernacle and later on in the, in the temple. And so uh, even if they weren't serving as a priest, they still had their responsibilities and duties to tend to uh, in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. Of course, those duties varied and included offering praises to God with instruments. We'll actually see that later on in Ezra. They also served as gatekeepers, amongst other responsibilities. Some are simply identified as temple servants, and we see this in verses 43 to 45. Um, the next section we see in the list is names of Solomon's servants. We see this in verses 55 to 58. You might ask yourselves, you know, who, who are these folks? <laughs> you know, that are returning Solomon's servants. Um, some believe that they had, may have been descendants of those who worked on Solomon's temple project. Remember, there was uh, many, many, many uh, people who served, um, whether as servants or slaves, in the project of building uh, what we call Solomon's temple. They were probably more workers at the house of God, doing more of the mundane tasks, perhaps even you know cleaning and things like that. However, their exact responsibilities aren't specified uh, here or even elsewhere at times. But I want to slow down uh, now at the next kind of group of people listed, which is in verses 62 and 63 actually beginning really back in 61. It says uh, here in verse 61, And the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Koz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and, who, and was called by their name. These, that is those just mentioned in 61, sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found Therefore, they were excluded from the, uh, from the priesthood as defiled. So you might kind of wonder, what's, what's exactly going on here? You know, seems like Ezra kind of slows down here in the list to provide more detail uh, to this situation here, and that's exactly what he's doing. I think the purpose that Ezra has in this is to kind of highlight the fact that uh, the, the priesthood was not something to be taken lightly. That the requirement to have, the, to have some connection uh, or some record of their connection to the Levitical priesthood was essential. It was critical because their service to the Lord uh, uh, was critical. And if we look back at passages uh, regarding the priesthood, it was it was set in stone that no one would serve in the priesthood unless they were of the tribe of Levi. And so here we have folks who, uh, who made a claim to be a part of the priesthood, to be of the tribe of Levi, but because uh, there was no record, at least on hand, to verify that, uh, they were told or they were required to be excluded from the priesthood as Defiled, that is not able to serve in the priesthood. Look at verse uh, 63. It says, And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. That governor uh, probably was Zerubbabel, although he's not mentioned. And so there was this kind of... Uh, at least for a temporary time, an exclusion of these folks because 
there was some uncertainty surrounding their exact genealogy. And so out of precaution to not disobey the law of Moses, especially you know, as they're trying to just reinstitute the worship of, of Yahweh in the temple and wanting to be obedient to the law, they excluded them from the priesthood until they could consult or until a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. Now, maybe some of you are looking at that, at that and saying, what in the world is the Urim and the Thummim? Well, there is a lot of kind of ambiguity around exactly what this was, but we do know that uh, it was related to the breastplate that was worn by the priest, by the high priest. And it was a means of, of determining God's will in a situation when there was some uncertainty around what God wanted them to do or how to go about you know, a certain situation that was you know, quite difficult to ascertain you know, what the best decision would be. Really, the most we can find out about uh, the Urim and the Thummim are from the passages in 1 Samuel 23, uh, 9 to 12, as well as uh, 30, 1 Samuel 30, 7 to 8, which indicate uh, that the question you know, that they're trying to seek an answer to, in this case, you know, whether or not these priests were really of the tribe of Levi, uh, the question then would ask, required a yes or no answer. That's the most we can kind of conjure up from 1 Samuel 23. And so, you know, in this case, you know, our, it, the question would be asked, you know, perhaps, you know, I'm kind of, you know, just postulizing here, postulating, uh, you know, are they of the tribe of Levi? You know, and maybe they list the names. And there would be some kind of yes, you know, required a yes or no answer. And so thus the priest would use the Urim and the Thummim to obtain an indication of God's will. And oftentimes, I've heard it said that they would ask a number of yes or no questions in order to kind of verify that yes, this is actually true. You know, one yes or no question and the answer to it could be wrong. You know, did they get it right? Did they get it wrong? And so often there would be, you know, two or three or four questions asked in a yes or no manner to determine or, uh, God's will. It's, you know, it's pretty vague. And, you know, in your mind, it's probably hard to understand it exactly. It is in mine how exactly this worked. But the fact that it's kind of ambiguous and that it's not mentioned that often seems to indicate that this was reserved, you know, for very special occasions. This wasn't used all the time. It wasn't the ordinary means of determining God's will. Rather, you know, uh, more ordinary means would be searching the law of Moses. You know, what does God's written revelation say about a certain situation versus this kind of extraordinary supernatural means. We're going to talk about that in just a moment in regard to the present day and how we determine God's will. But uh, before we do that, just want to make one more note about this list in verses 64 to 67. We see here the total number of returnees as well as the livestock that came with them. It says in verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 men and women singers. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Verse 68, some of the heads of the father's houses when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minus of silver, and 100 priestly garments. Verse 70, so the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their Cities. Now, uh, I don't call myself a great mathematician, but if you've ever added up the uh, sum total of the numbers that's listed here throughout Ezra 2, you'll note that uh, there's two different totals. Uh, there's the total here, which 
Ezra records as 42,360. But the numbers in the list add up to 29,818. So, you know, you kind of scratch in your head and say, is Ezra just a really bad mathematician? <laughs> uh, or is there some mistake here? There's, in my opinion, a little bit of uncertainty. What, what is the reason? It could simply be that uh, the list is ex- omitting certain people for whatever reason. And so the sum total was 42,360, but the reason the list is a much smaller number is because not all the names are listed here. And so that's, that's very possible. Another possibility is simply that uh, if you know anything about the Hebrew language and numbers, uh, it was very hard for in Hebrew for them to write you know, certain numbers and have that kind of preserved. Uh, Hebrew often just uses you know, the word one, two, and three in the sense of you know, O-N-E, you know, T-W-O, not necessarily the symbol one that we use or two. And so uh, to preserve that, you know, think of scribes who are trying to preserve the text and re- copy the text. It would have been difficult for them, and there's the possibility that there could have been mistakes along the way. But honestly, that doesn't frighten me too much or change my opinion of the inerrancy and accuracy of the text. These aren't theological matters we're talking about here, and so you know, one or two mistakes or more in regard to a total number of people really doesn't, shouldn't undermine our confidence in the word of God. At the same time, it is just as possible that some names were omitted. Regardless of that, you know, we shouldn't have any you know, worry. It shouldn't keep us up at night. The fact is the total was 42,360. Now, I want to just mention one, uh, one more thing that I want to make, uh, make clear is not the purpose of this text, but it is a question that may rise from this text as modern-day readers of the text, and that is regard to how, how do we discern the will of God in our day, in our age. You know, we don't have this urim and thumim, and even if we did, it wasn't for us to use. It was for the high priest. And so how do we discern the will of God? Again, I'm not saying this is the primary reason this text is here. I mentioned why I think it is recorded earlier on at the beginning. But it is one question that maybe you know, rises from the text as you read it. How do we discern the will of God in our day and age if it's not through some supernatural means? That said, there are some that do take kind of a mystical approach to discerning God's will. You know, kind of like, you know, I, I want, uh, you know, I want to see the fleece, you know, be dry or to, you know, have the dew. I want to, I want to see some kind of big sign that tells me, you know, whether I should take this job or take that job or marry this person or marry that person, um, you know, move here or go there or attend this church or attend that church. And so some do take this mystical approach to, you know, I just kind of want to sign in the heavens in order to know but I don't think that's the biblical approach that we should take as students of God's word. And so in just the last four or five minutes here, I want to just briefly uh, really survey this, this idea and this topic of uh, discerning the will of God. Um, there are two, uh, two kind of terms used. Uh, that is the one being God's sovereign will and the other God's moral will. What do we mean by uh, sovereign will? Well, God's sovereign will is uh, reflected uh, as something of a secret, determinative decree, things that we cannot know uh, that God has not revealed in Scripture but they will inevitably occur. They will be fulfilled because God has decreed it. His sovereign will has decreed that they take place. But being secret, it cannot be known. We know this of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. And the Christian's proper response to these kinds of things or to this decree is to simply accept it in faith. That God will complete his, his sovereign will. 
and we will never exactly know what that is before it happens, at least. There's also, though, God's moral will, which refers to God's revealed, we might say prescriptive expectations for his creatures concerning all that they ought to do. And that has clearly been revealed through Scripture. And so unlike God's sovereign will, which is secret, it's his determinative decree that's uh, secret to us but known to him and will occur, God's moral will is something that we should know, we should be familiar with through the study of his Scripture. This can and must be known, that is God's moral will, and the Christian's proper response to God's moral will is to obey it to accept it as the truth and to obey it. So that's, uh, those are things which we can know. And so in large part, or in some total, when it comes to determining God's will in areas, rather than looking for some you know, sign in the sky, we should look into God's word and say, what does God's word say about this? Maybe directly, but maybe indirectly at times. And that's perhaps when we find the most frustration. You know, we want just a, a verse in the Bible that, you know, answers our specific question. But that's often not how Scripture works. Scripture gives us the wisdom needed to make a wise, godly decision. And so being good students of God's word will help us in that decision making. But that, call, that requires us to not be lazy and take the excuse of, you know, I just kind of want a sign in the sky. That's kind of the, the cop-out option versus being a student of the Word of God. And perhaps that requires us to seek wisdom from those who know Scripture better to say, you know, how do you think I should act in this situation? What path should I take? Here's my options. What do you think would most glorify God, be most obedient to his moral will? There is this kind of third idea that we've already kind of alluded to, though, which is, you know, the, the kind of mystical view. And some people call this, uh, or have identified it as God's perfect will. You know, God has a, you know, one specific person in mind, you know, that he wants me to marry. And i got to find that person. You know, and, uh, you know, that might be kind of one, one example of this kind of perfect will. You know, there's, there's one career. There's that, you know, that career that God wants me to have. And I have to figure out what that is. In this way, then, though the perfect will, as some people call it, God's perfect will, is the best course of action among several legitimate options. And so people get all kind of out of sorts saying, you know, I have all these options, but there's, there's the best one. There's the perfect one that God has for me. And I, until I can figure out which one that is, I'm not going to do anything. But that's not the right approach. But these, who, those who take this approach say, you know, God normally hides but divulges privately to those who meet, you know, certain condition, uh, conditions. You know, if, if I just pray enough, if I just, you know, do this thing enough, God will eventually reveal it to me, that his perfect will. But this is not a category reflected in God's scripture. The perfect will idea fails for a number of reasons. One, it uh, erroneously conflates two mutually exclusive expressions of God's will, one wholly secret, you know, God's sovereign will, and the other wholly revealed. The things that are secret are secret, but the things that have been revealed are revealed, and we should know them. There's no kind of in-between in category that's unrevealed, but will be revealed if we meet, you know, certain expectations or pray hard enough or whatever, fast long enough. And so uh, there's only two really wills here that we're talking about, not a third kind of, you know, conglomeration of the two. So, uh, it also reflects a faulty view of God's divine sovereignty. Uh, that, you know, God has, uh, yes, he has determined things in our lives, but, but we don't know those ahead of time all the time. And we need to trust God's sovereignty and take action upon the things which we do know 
about him and about what he would have for us revealed in his moral will. And so perhaps you find yourself in a situation as we close this evening, you know, where you're asking the question, you know, what's God's will for my life? And I would simply encourage you to say, uh, to look into God's word and say, you know, what wisdom has he already given you through his word to make those decisions? Don't, you know, don't live in a state of kind of uncertainty or indecision because you're waiting for some kind of supernatural thing to take place, you know, God to reveal in a dream or something like that, his perfect will. Rather, take action, be obedient to his word, and God will give you the wisdom. James tells us, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and he will give it abundantly. But ask in faith, ask in faith, and he'll, he'll answer that according to his will. So as we close this evening... Although that's not necessarily the purpose of Ezra 2, it is one point of application, I believe, amongst the fact that we talked, like the fact we talked about at the beginning, that God's people must return to Israel in order for his plan of redemption to be fulfilled. And so in obedience, we see here through representation of families' names and places of origin and occupation, Obedient faith operating, demonstrating that they trusted God and that they wanted to follow God and be true worshipers of him in their land, to see the temple rebuilt, to be able to fulfill his law as was given to them. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we close now and go our way, may you bless our time of fellowship. Lord, may you help us as we go throughout our week to make godly decisions. Lord, not, not waiting for you to reveal yourself in some supernatural way, but, Lord, simply being good students of your word to determine the, what you have for us, Lord, exercising wisdom, exercising obedience, uh, exercising humility and seeking the, the, uh, the wisdom of others in order to be obedient to your word as you've called us to do. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.